Today we are uh, continuing in the series that we began in January, which we've entitled Make It Count, based on the book of Philippians. Uh, Next week we'll be wrapping that up and uh, getting ready to go into the Easter season, so it's coming upon us quickly. Today we are going to consider how a make it count approach to faith creates a church culture where accountability is not only valued, but is actually practiced. And uh, the intent today is for us to see what Paul is saying as a challenge to us. I think his, his advice is very practical, very simple. Of course, what we won't be doing today is a conflict resolution seminar, but we do want to take a look at what Paul has to say and how maybe we can apply that to our lives. One of my favorite stories is uh, the story of a man who has been living alone on a deserted island for about 10 years. And on the day of his rescue, he's standing with his rescuers and they notice in the distance there are three makeshift huts. And so they ask him, you know, what are those? And he says, well, the middle one is my house. The one on the left is my church. And the one on the right is where I used to go to church. And... uh, So, you know, I like that because even sometimes we are so conflicted within ourselves that we can't even be with ourselves, it seems. But um, wherever there are people, whether it's your marriage, your family, your neighborhood, your church, your workplace, wherever there are people, the potential for conflict exists. In this passage... Paul addresses a conflict that exists between two people in the Philippian church, the impact that that conflict is having and can potentially have, and he wraps it up with the desired alternative to this conflict. And so we're going to look at this this morning. Thank you, Phil, for leading scripture. If you have your Bible, you can follow along, uh, Philippians 4, 2 to 9. The conflict. So Epaphroditus has brought Paul, we said, a monetary gift. He's shown up to show uh, support and to help. And of course, it's likely that he's bringing news to Paul of what's happening back in the Philippian church. I mean, I can just imagine it. He shows up with the money. Here, can I adjust your pillows, help you out? Let's have a chat. And Paul says, so Epaphroditus, you know, spill the tea. What's happening back in, in Philippi, what's happening back in the church? Bring me up to date. What's, what's happening? And so Epaphroditus is starting to share stories of, of things that are happening back home. But there's a situation back home that has now been brought to Paul's attention between two prominent women in the church, Eodia and Sundike. And there seems to be a disagreement between them that is not just a passing fad, but it seems to have been going on for a while. What's interesting to note that the name Eodia means sweet fragrance, the name Sundike means pleasant. Clearly, neither of them is living up to their name. The problem appears to not be oriented around doctrinal belief or opinions on theological things, but rather a clash of personalities or a difference of opinion. And the impact, the issue is affecting the church as a whole. Now, in an ideal church, 
There will be mutual love. There will be mutual um, forgiveness. There will be mutual support for one another. But this issue reflects that the opposite is actually happening specifically with these two individuals in the church. Now, Paul is quick to point out that, you know, somewhat, this is somewhat mind-boggling for him because in the past, he says, you guys worked with me. You worked right alongside of me, together, side by side. We, we built this church together. We, we advanced the cause of the gospel. Your cooperation, working together with me, advanced the gospel in the past, but now your disunity at this moment is harming the gospel in the present and potentially in the future. Now, these are clearly influential women. And there's potential here that what's happening will impact the unity of the congregation as a whole. In fact, the situation is serious enough, and it's gone on long enough, that Paul actually calls them out publicly. I mean, imagine, Philippians is a letter that's going to go back with Epaphroditus, and when they stand to read the letter, and Paul's saying all the things he's had to say, all of a sudden he goes, now, you and you. You know, and you're just kind of sliding down in your seat. But it's gone on long enough. It's serious enough that Paul is confronting it. He doesn't say which of them is in the wrong. That's not his job. That's not his intent. But he calls on both of them to somehow resolve this conflict. And Paul says, I'm, I'm pleading you with you. I'm begging you to agree with each other. Now, the words agree with each other doesn't mean that you have to see it eye to eye exactly the same. It means that even though you're holding different opinions, you need to find a way to live in harmony. Now, clearly, they've not been able to resolve the conflict on their own. So, Paul says, listen, if you guys can't figure it out on your own, then I'm going to solicit people in the congregation. And he names Clement, and he names others, and, and, and he says, you know, you guys worked together with me before. I want you to come alongside, and I want you to get involved with this situation and help them to find a resolution to their conflict. That was loud, sorry. And that goes out for all the millions who listen over the internet. As I said in the opening, wherever there are people, there is the potential for conflict. Conflict within the church, within church community, is a reality. We, we know that. There are differing personalities that are assembled. There are opposing opinions amongst the group. There are multiple ways to do any one thing. There are personal preferences to how things are done. There's how we respond, how, how people are treated, the perception of what someone is, is, is doing or what someone might be doing. All of these things are a reality in the context of a church community. The issue is not if there is going to be conflict within the church community. That's a given. The issue is, are we committed to resolving it and how we are committed to resolving it. That is the issue. These are the issues. When there's conflict between people in a community of faith, we're not living up to our name. And we use the name Christian. Now, I want to be completely honest with you. I don't really like that term much these days. 
And you understand why. Because our world and our culture has taken something that is so profound and significant and watered it down to a a religious identification whether it has any reality in your life or not. So I find myself most often these days saying, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. And you understand what I'm saying. But in the book of Acts, the term Christian really meant something. And we read in Acts 11, verse 26, it says, the disciples were called Christians first, for the very first time in Antioch. Why were they called Christians? They were called Christians because their behavior, the activity of their life, the speech of their mouths was like Jesus. The word Christian means follower of Christ or belonging to the party of Christ. It really held significance. When people saw these early believers, they saw Jesus. And so they called them Christians. When there's unresolved conflict in our lives, when there's unresolved conflict in our church community, our behavior, our speech is not Christian because it's not like Jesus. If that's what makes us like Jesus, when when there's unresolved conflict, then we're not like Jesus. We're not living up to our name. And furthermore, it affects the whole church community because the love, the forgiveness, the support for one another that is what truly defines the body of Jesus is either missing or significantly hindered when that conflict exists. And so it's important to see that even though we're individuals, we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. We are a community. We are a community. We're intended to be. And we're a community that has worked together. Some of you in this particular community for a very long time. Some since the very beginning in the early days. I know you're 140 now. But you've been doing it a long time. We've worked together. We've celebrated together. We've sacrificed together. We've even mourned together, side by side, and built a community. And we're often concerned in this community when things don't go right about who is it that's right and who's wrong. The truth is, it's not about who's right and wrong as much as it's about finding a way to resolve the conflict and put our focus back where it belongs, to put our energy back where it belongs. And if we can't do it on our own, Jesus has placed us in his body so we can be held accountable to one another and ultimately accountable to Christ, and we can do this together. You know, sometimes there's a debate about what truly makes a church spiritual. What are the indications that a church community is a deeply spiritual body? Well, I believe that the true spiritual depth of any church community is not measured by how passionately we worship. It's not measured by how passionately we preach. It's not even measured by how passionately we pray. I believe it's measured by how passionately we love and treat each other. Because you can have great worship 
and dynamic preaching and people who pray and they treat each other terribly. That's not spiritual. It's love and respect for one another. The conflict. Secondly, the impact. After calling these women out publicly, after soliciting the help of the congregation as a whole to get involved and to help them, Paul then says something that we, that we love to hear. In fact, when Phil read it this morning, I heard mumbling of amens going through the group. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Now, when you look at the passage closely, at face value, when you see it kind of wedged in there between what Paul just said about the conflict and what he's about to say, you look at that and you say, well, I guess what Paul is saying there is, Get past your conflicts so that you can focus instead on rejoicing in the Lord. Because, you know, ain't nobody got time for conflict. But that's not what Paul's saying here. This is not some random sentence that seemingly doesn't belong, that sounds good, that he just throws in the middle of two paragraphs, says, that looks nice there, okay, let's move on. That's not what this is. This is a significant statement. He's transitioning from identifying a serious problem and conflict to now he's focusing on the impact that the conflict can have, the impact that's beyond the lives of the two women, in fact, even beyond those in the church community that are in the congregation. Now, to understand this, we, we need to understand something about Paul's culture when he's writing. It was common in this culture to organize great festivals, feasts, games, shows, dramas, to celebrate the gods, to celebrate the cities, to celebrate Caesar. And the whole point was to draw attention to what mattered most to the people through public display. So that everybody who lived in the town would know that the city mattered, Caesar mattered, the gods mattered. You know, all, all of these things were, were important. The word rejoice that Paul uses here means to call one of these public celebrations. So what Paul is saying really is this, call a public celebration. And I say it again, call a public celebration. Well, for what purpose? Why is he asking them to do that? He says, to let your gentleness be evident to all. This sentence properly translated says, to yield, one's, to yield one's personal rights for the benefit of another person and the group as a whole. So what is Paul doing here? Paul is reminding them that their faith is on display for all the world to see. That people in their culture knew who the followers of Jesus were. The people in this culture knew what Christians claimed to represent. And they are watching these so-called Christians live out their so-called Christian lives. And so Paul is showing them that, listen, your current behavior is setting a bad example, not just for the congregation, but for unbelievers. It's affecting unbelievers. The impact of their conflict has potential to hurt 
the cause of the gospel as a whole outside of their congregation. Their lives are on display. And so you, Paul is saying, use your lives to draw attention to what matters most, which is the gospel of Jesus. Don't use your lives to draw negative attention to your personal conflicts. And he says, do this because the Lord is near. The Lord is near. Now, there's two meanings here. The first is, Jesus is with you. He's in the midst of you. He dwells in you. He's a part of the community of faith. If Jesus is with you, come on, people, he's saying. Certainly, you can work this nonsense out. Jesus is there in the midst of you. And by the way, you might want to remember that next time you open your mouth to say that nasty thing about soon decay. Jesus is right there, the so-called unseen guest. But also it means, listen, the coming of Jesus is near. Jesus left us with the imperative to work while it is day because night's coming when the work has to cease, that the kingdom of God is breaking in, that Jesus is going to come back, and there's a window of time of salvation that we reach people's lives through the gospel, and it's near. And Paul's saying we want to reach as many people before Jesus comes. Don't ruin that with your petty personal conflicts. Don't ruin it. It says how they're behaving is affecting them, their church, and the world around them. I'm giving you notice that I'm going to drink now. This is a challenge for me. I went to this because it was no longer politically correct to drink out of a you know, disposable water bottle, which has a smaller mouth on it. I mean, you've got to be an elephant to drink out of this. And then I thought something with a straw. Well, that's no longer in either. So I had to drink out of this. Okay, that was good. Clayton Head once offered me a helmet with two things on it and a straw that comes down. Maybe I should consider that. I believe to my core that the greatest acts of evangelism, the greatest moments of witnessing are not found in the words we speak, but in the lives we live. Like it or not, our lives are on display for all to see. Now, that gets real scary when you go home because your spouse knows who you really are, right? You've heard me joke. People come up to Jen and say, he's so funny. Your home must be so filled with laughter. And she says, yes, it's a real circus. (laughs) She knows the reality. My children, they know the reality. Your children know the reality. Our families, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our fellow church workers, members, the world around us. Our lives are on display. People are watching us whether we realize it or not. And every day, how we live is communicating what we value. It's communicating who we value. It's communicating our priorities and our passions. Now, when we get it right, great things are accomplished for the kingdom of God. But when we get it wrong... Great damage can be done. Now, you've heard me say many times, no one sins alone, right? When someone sins, it affects marriages and families, affects friendships, and others who are directly affected by our behavior. And so for that reason, it's important 
to heed the reminder of Paul that faith is meant to be lived on display. Faith is not a private, personal thing that we get to have that no one gets to see. That, that's just complete anti-everything. Well, it's anti-Christ. <laughs> it's important that we are communicating with our lives, but it's also very important what we are communicating with our lives. I believe it's important for the world to see that we're not perfect. I think for a long time, the church wanted to pretend we were perfect, and very quickly we earned the reputation of being hypocrites, because guess what? We're not perfect, and guess what? Many days we are hypocrites, right? It's important for the world to see we're not perfect. We fail. Being a follower of Christ doesn't mean we never fail. It doesn't mean that we don't make poor choices. It doesn't mean that there are times that we don't behave inappropriately. Of course we do. Of course we do. God, by His Spirit, is not finishing working in us yet. We haven't arrived. But what makes us different as followers of Jesus is that at the core of our being, we are committed to living and being like Jesus, even though we fail repeatedly, and we have developed sincerely repentant hearts so that in those moments when we fail and when we fall and when we're something less than we should be, we have learned the art of repentance that we can say to God and to those we've offended, I'm sincerely sorry. And I'm going to try and be different. And I'm going to try and do it better. And we'll probably fail 20 more times the same way before we even start to get it right. But at least we really mean it. We really are sincere. Sincerely repentant hearts. We get up when we fall down. And we say, Jesus, help me get it right next time. That's what sets us apart. And how we resolve conflict between us is significantly important for the world to observe. Listen, I'm telling you, people know what's happening in local churches, more so in small towns. But I've talked to unbelievers who've said, I don't want to go to that church. You wouldn't believe what's happening over there because it moves around town. People know who we are. They know who we are. I remember, well, just recently we just got back from Cuba and we stayed in the hotel, that was the first hotel I stayed in when I first started going with teams to Cuba in the Veradero area. My first trip there, I was just, you know, really green. So I brought all these cotton shirts and they're all crumpled up in my suitcase. And so, you know, I called the front desk looking for why the iron wasn't in my room. And then you learn the Cuban phrase, that is not possible. And so, uh, you know, so you're saying like, so you're telling me, like, there is no iron, you can't iron in your room. Okay, I have a, you know, I have a major crisis on my hands now. I got like six shirts that need ironing. And she said, bring them to the front desk. So I brought them to the front desk. And that night, Vivian took them home. She ironed them and brought them back to me and gave them to me the next morning. And I said, well, wow, thank you so much. Let me pay you. And she goes, no, no, it's for the church, right? I mean, I was a CIA agent at that time undercover in Cuba. Nobody knew who I was or where I was from. And she looked at me and said, it's for the church, right? She knew who I was and I didn't tell anybody, but she knew. The world knows who we're supposed to be and how we resolve conflict between us is significantly important for the world to observe. Jesus says, they 
they, the world, those who are watching you, will know that you belong to me by your love for one another. Your love for one another. Folks, we're being watched. And it's important to get it right because there's a lot at stake. Thirdly and finally, the alternative. In the final section of this, these few verses, Paul deals with the alternative to conflict. Of course, the alternative to conflict is peace. It's peace. Paul uses two phrases. He uses the phrase, the peace of God, in the front part of it. And he uses the phrase, the God of peace, in the back end of it. Because the truth is, the peace of God comes from the God of peace. Right? Pretty straightforward. But how? How do we know that peace? How is it possible to have peace instead of conflict? How is it possible? Well, Paul highlights three areas of importance in this section in experiencing peace versus conflict. First, he says, it's prayer. You need to understand that anxiety was a way of life for many in Paul's time. There were a lot of gods in the culture. And most of the people living there believed that the gods were out to get them. Something bad was always waiting to happen. And so people lived under this cloud of anxiety, afraid of the gods. People attributed hardships in their lives to the gods. And as a result of that, people were desperately trying to appease the gods, to, to bring them favor instead of hardship. So as you can imagine, this created significant anxiety. In contrast, for the followers of Jesus, they're being told that God, your God cares about your problems. Your God cares about your concerns. Your God is there with you through the struggles in your life, never leaving you, never forsaking you. That life would be filled with struggles. Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. They're going to kill me, they'll kill you. Thanks for joining. There was no secret from Jesus. Life, is going to be, life as a follower of Jesus was going to be filled with struggles, but that God was going to be with them. And so what Paul is saying is, listen, you don't have to live your lives like the pagans around you who are afraid of their gods. You can go to your God in prayer. You can present your requests to God. You can pour out your heart. You can make intercession. You can, you can unburden your life in the presence of God. And if you do that, you're going to experience the peace of God from the God of peace right there in the middle of that war in your life. The second thing Paul throws out as a, a means to peace is attitude. The peace of God comes to those, Paul says, who've learned to focus on the good things that God provides, rather than focusing on the negative things and the anxiety that we have no control over that causes us to fear. And so Paul instructs them, he says, listen, shift your focus from the things that create anxiety and instead focus on what God has provided and given to you. Focus on truth. 
Whatever is true. Focus on truth. Don't focus on fear. Focus on the things that are worthy of respect. Don't focus on the things that are poor witness. He says, focus on things that promote justice for all. Not on your own personal rights. Focus on the things that are morally pure rather than serving the flesh. Focus on gentleness and kindness versus anger and rudeness. Focus on things that are worth hearing rather than words that are spoken selfishly, self-driven. Paul says if you focus on the things that affect your attitude, if you focus on these things, it will change your outlook in life. Focus on the fact. You know, this is a precursor to the old hymn, Count Your Blessings. Lay in your bed and think of all the wonderful things Paul's saying that God has brought into your life. And if you start focusing on them, instead of focusing on all the negative things, you will suddenly realize you're experiencing the peace of God. And then Paul addresses lifestyle. He says, who you are as followers of Jesus is is the product of, of many things and many people and many years. You've been taught things. You've heard things spoken. You've seen things with your own eyes. There are truths that you've adopted into your life that have shaped who you are and, and, and who you declare to be, what you've become. And Paul says, he's challenging them. He says, all those things, put them in the practice. They're not just to be heard. You don't listen to a sermon just to hear it. You hear it and you apply it. Novel idea, I know, I'm just putting it out there. You don't just see something magnificent of God and go, wow, that was pretty nice. Really appreciate that. No, it shapes us. Paul says, put these things into practice. Commit to them. Live them out. Let others see them in your life. Let the witness of your life do the talking of what you believe. When you're living in the freedom, Paul says, of who you've become in Jesus, when you start living in that freedom of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, when you live out what you say you believe, you're going to know the peace of God and the God of peace. We live in a world that is broken. It's broken. If you don't know that, you just got to watch the news once. We live in a world that is broken and filled with conflict We live in a world that longs for peace. A world that longs for peace. We live in a world filled with people who are broken. If you don't believe that, just walk outside. In fact, you don't even have to leave there. We're in here. (laughs) People who are broken, living in conflict, but long for peace. Every day in their home is conflict because the marriage is not working. Every day there's conflict because relationship with the kids is not working. Or your mother-in-law is overbearing. It's just theoretically putting that out there. Or, you know, people who are just, God, if I could just have some peace, right? Who among us doesn't want to sit by ourselves at the end of the dock with a cup of coffee? 
right? Peace. We long for it. The peace that our world needs can only come from the peace of God. And as believers, sometimes we believe that the only way that we will experience peace is for Jesus to come and calm the metaphorical storm in our lives to remove the painful hardships. If he would just come and and just fix this, if he would just come and calm this down and put things back in order and take the pain and the heartache away, if, if Jesus would just come and do that, I would know peace. But there's a significant truth that's missing in that way of thinking because the truth is Jesus calms us And brings us peace right in the midst of the storm. He doesn't wait for the storm to end or the circumstances to change before he gives us his peace. He allows us to mysteriously, and we don't understand it, experience this peace. And that's why the Bible says it passes all understanding because we can't begin to understand it. How is it possible that I could be in the middle of hell And have the peace of God because he's with us. Folks, the storm doesn't need to disappear for us to find peace. And when we find the prince of peace in the storm, we experience peace while the storm rages all around us. It's impossible to live with unresolved conflict, with anger, and opposition when our prayers before God are sincere. The two can't exist. You can't know a sincere prayer life while harboring conflict, anger, bitterness, and opposition. It's just not possible. But when our prayer lives are sincere, that stuff just miraculously melts away. It's impossible to live with unresolved conflict and anger and opposition when our attitude is genuinely rooted in focusing on the things in our lives that come from God, when He is our focus and our lives become lives of gratefulness and appreciation and value, and we see the wonderful things that God is providing, when that happens, it's not possible for conflict to stay. If you, are, if you say, well, I focus on those things, but you have unresolved conflict, something's wrong. Because it's technically not possible. It's impossible to live in unresolved conflict, anger, and opposition when we're truly living the way Jesus has called us to live. If we're really living the kingdom way, if we're really followers of Jesus, there's no room for that stuff. There's no room. It's not baggage. We're like the rest of the airlines. Listen, baggage will cost you. No baggage included in this flight. Sorry. And it's more than $28.50, I think. Sometimes we make room for unresolved conflicts within our Christian lives, but the truth is, that's an oxymoron. Unresolved conflict, anger, opposition can't exist in a truly Christian life. Sorry. The two don't go together. One is destroying the other. And guess which one's destroying which one? When we focus on prayer, when we focus on being grateful for the wonderful things 
that God has provided and is doing in our lives. When we commit to living as we should, as followers of Jesus, the peace of God sets up residence in our lives. You can travel all over the world and find people who are starving or are imprisoned in work camps or are living in hardship or don't know how they're going to provide the needs of their family. But as followers of Jesus, there's a peace in their lives that they know that doesn't make sense because of Jesus. Now, often in North America, we miss that because we've been trained to believe theologically that if life is good, that's the blessing and favor of God. And if it isn't, somewhere along the way, we must have figured it out. And let's do a whole course on trying to trace the generational sin. Sorry, I don't mean to be sarcastic, but I am. No. In the midst of it, peace comes into our lives. In the midst of it. Because when you're living for Jesus, even when the hardships come, the peace is there. The peace is there. A make it count approach to faith creates a church culture where accountability is not only valued, but it's practiced. It's, it's lived out. We hold each other accountable, not to judge or punish, but to say, listen, we can do better. We can be better. You can be better. There's something more for you. I'm not going to leave you here mired in this. I'm going to help you move past this so you can know something better. Wherever there are people, the potential for conflict exists. But the issue is not whether there'll be conflict. The issue is, are we committed to resolving it? Are we, are we resolving it and committed to resolving it properly? See, how we resolve conflict between us is significantly important for those in our church community to observe those in our town, our cities, to observe. It's important to get it right. I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning. We're going to take a few moments at this time. I'm going to invite our prayer team, if you would just come and assemble here at the front. We're going to take a few moments this morning in this environment to offer opportunities. Some of you came here this morning and maybe you came with the intent that if I can just get to my church community this morning, I just feel so sick or worn down or, or worn out that I just need someone in that church community to pray for me and to encourage me and to help me. Maybe that was you this morning and, and you got yourself here. And so we want to provide opportunity for someone to pray with you, to encourage you, to help you. Maybe you're here this morning and there's a lot of things going on in your life that are much bigger than your ability to change, to fix, to bring resolution to. And you want someone to pray with you this morning. And perhaps there are many others of us today that this is our moment to just, in peaceful reflection, allow the Holy Spirit to speak into our lives and to show us because, you know, if I said to you, I want you to make two lists. I want you to make a list of the things that the people in your life are doing wrong that you would like to see changed. And I'd like you to make a list of the things that you can do to contribute to a better relationship. Hunch is that the list on the left would be a lot longer than the list on the right. I don't know about you, but my gifting is able to see the problems in others much better than I can see them in myself. That's a real gift. I was born and raised with that gift. 
And some days I had to really fight to overcome that gift. And the nice thing about having that gift is, I realize that most other people have that gift too. And maybe you're here this morning and what the Holy Spirit wants to say to you is, let's stop trying to point out who's right and who's wrong for a moment and let's discern what I want of you in your life. What I want you to do, what I'm trying to teach you in this. And maybe in these next few moments, God by his spirit will speak to your heart as well. Carlene, would you lead us this morning? Prayer team, would you? Would you come? Lord, that's our confession this morning. We do need you. And Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit this morning, would you visit each of us individually? And would you allow us to push aside the distractions, any finger pointing we might have in our lives, our obsession with blame or the hurts that have been created, and help us to see ourselves in light of you this morning, your forgiveness, your grace, your mercy, your love extended to us, undeservingly, I might add. And God, would you, by your spirit, somehow deal with those deep-rooted hurts in our lives, and would you help us to process that and to be able to make the changes in our lives? I pray that you'd help us to have the courage to take the steps to resolve what may be in our lives between us and another. So that, Lord, there'd be nothing in our lives that would keep us back from fully reflecting Jesus Christ in our lives. That our lives would be an example of followers of Jesus. Jesus in our words, in our actions, in our thoughts, in our priorities. And God, I know that so many of the challenges in our lives are not so trivial that we can just pray them away or hope them away or decide them away, but we know that there's often hard work to be done in reconciling conflicts. Lord, I pray that today you would help us to decide that we want to, that it's important, that it's a priority. And Father, that we would start out on that road. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for so many things, but I thank you for the incredible sense of community that is here the love for one another, the support, the encouragement, and even on the tough days to step up and hold one another accountable when it needs to happen. Not because we're being judgy, but because we love each other so much that we can't bear to see someone left behind spiritually, emotionally, relationally. And so God, I pray that you would give us the courage and the wisdom to be you to those that are a part of our community and the body of Christ with us. Father, as we leave this place today, may we be reminded that our lives are living witnesses to the world around us. And I pray that what people see of Jesus in us is what you would want them to see. So help us, we pray. When we fail, would you forgive us? When we repent, would you put us on the right road? Lord, would you help us to be better husbands, better wives, better parents, better friends, better neighbors, better church members, better workers. God, just help us to be more like you, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.